Welcome to Talking Finance, the Constant Investor's weekly podcast radio show. Now, you've heard of Paul Revere, the silversmith who rode through Massachusetts warning that the British were coming. Well, retail analysts have been galloping around Australia for a long time, warning that Amazon is coming. And sure enough, last week, Amazon itself confirmed that it is indeed coming. It's looking for a place for one of its colossal distribution centres. But as Nathan Lim of Morgan Stanley Wealth Management points out, it's just one this stage. But as Nathan told me, Amazon's arrival in Australia is a big deal. I think the key takeaway that we want to share with our investors is that, first of all, Tom Carruth uh, covers uh, a retail space for us here in Australia. And his thinking around Amazon's arrival is that it's going to be a problem, but it's not a today problem. It's something that's going to take years to happen. And the key driver for Amazon's uh, growth overseas has really been around that very fast delivery around their prime offering. Now, they've indicated to us or to the market, that they're going to enter Australia with one fulfillment center at this point in time, which in Tom's view is is not going to be sufficient to allow them to come up with that very, very quick delivery, which is what's been driving growth overseas. So while Amazon might uh, is, is entering Australia in a bigger way, we still see this as a, as a real competitive threat, not so much today, but more of an issue longer term. Sure, it'll take a while for them to build up and so on in Australia, but wouldn't it? Yeah, wouldn't you say that it means that Australian retailers from now are more or less ex-growth? I wouldn't say they're ex-growth. Remembering that the market already is quite large, you, you've got $300 billion of sales uh, up for grabs. And so just to put that into context, we've got Bunnings, which does $11.5 billion, JB Hi-Fi at $3.9 billion, and Harvey Norman at $1.8 billion. There's ample room in the local market for more than one player. So it, it will be a competitive market. What it really does speak to longer term is that Australian retailers are probably going to have to up their game in terms of capabilities and in, t- uh, in, in regards to trying to compete with Amazon. So you've already seen it happen with Officeworks with uh, their adoption of Omnichannel. And more recently, uh, I've noticed as well that Harvey Norman is now offering uh, f- uh, free pickup from their own stores as another way of getting product to customers. All these capabilities inevitably add cost uh, to the bottom line. So it may not be X growth, but perhaps profitability might be more challenged going forward. You've studied Amazon, I think, fairly closely. What is it about that company that makes it so successful and makes it a possible country killer, or at least certainly a threat, a challenge for existing retailers in whatever market it goes into? I think a lot of people have got to realize that Amazon isn't just a retailer. I think when most people think of Amazon, they think of them solely as being as a seller of cheap products. Now, while that might be true, that only constitutes around 60, 67% of their total revenues. Amazon also has very fast-growing revenues in subscription services, their AWS or the Amazon Web Services, and what they call other revenues, which includes co-branded credit cards. And where we've seen the strongest profitability coming from Amazon has really been in those other businesses. So that's retail subscriptions, AWS, and credit cards, where they are enjoying strong growth and higher margins. So when you think of Amazon, Amazon is not just a retailer. Amazon is, a, is, is almost an economy into of itself, as they also have that very important supply chain piece within their business mix. 
By retail subscriptions, I presume you mean Amazon Prime, which in America costs $99 per year, I think. Tell us about Amazon Prime. Well, Amazon Prime is the way you can think of it is, is an all-you-can-eat package. Now, once you sign up for Amazon Prime, you get access to the, their digital offerings so that they would give you access to their digital content, but it also gives you free shipping. And that's the real value proposition that, uh, that Amazon has tapped into because what happens now is that, let's say you go on to their website and you find, see a pair of shoes that you like. Well, you can order two pairs of those shoes. It'll be shipped to you for free. You try the two of them on. The one that you like, you keep. The other one, you put it back in the box and you ship it back to them for free as well. And so that 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 service of free delivery that's unlimited has really been the game changer for for Amazon. That's the key competitive um, threat that Amazon brings to Australia, which brings us back to our our, our thesis that while they are entering this country, the fact that they're only coming in with one distribution center at this point in time means that they may not be able to come up with that full prime offering uh, uh, in the near term. Are you saying you don't think they will offer Amazon Prime in Australia? We don't think they're going to offer Amazon Prime in the way that it is being offered uh, overseas with, um, with, with free overnight delivery across the nation on day one. That seems, that seems a bit of an ask, a bit of a tall order because of the size, and, uh, the, the size of this country. It's, it's, it's very difficult and very expensive to be able to offer overnight delivery from one distribution center. And like, hypothetically, let's assume that it was based in Sydney, to be able to deliver something overnight to Perth is going to be it's going to be very difficult for them to pull off. So we're not saying that they're never going to be able to achieve that, but it just, again, it really speaks to the narrative that this is a multi-year rollout process for, for Amazon, and it's not going to all happen up front and one time for the, for the retailers in this country. Uh, are there any particular retailers in Australia that you and Tom Kirath, your retail analyst, think are best able to deal with the arrival of Amazon and the competitive threats in general, that are posed by online retailing? Tom's view is that the, the retail sec- segment in Australia are quite mature and, and very well run. Um, the, it's really more of a longer-term narrative around the, them having to deal with this, with this competitive gorilla. Um, one of the challenges near term that we point to is that Amazon will most likely launch, the first category it will launch is in consumer electronics. And and for consumer electronics, the two companies most at risk are JB Hi-Fi, which gets around 65% of its revenues from consumer electronics, and Harvey Norman at 33%. But just because, again, um, Amazon is is coming, it doesn't necessarily mean that JB Hi-Fi won't be able to respond. The other thing you have to remember as well is that if you look at how other international brands have entered this country, they've typically come in at higher price points than their home market. And we, we use examples of Zara and Costco and H&M and Uniqlo who price things higher here in Australia. And that's just a reflection of the fact that they also, like Australian retailers, have to have to use the same supply chains. And so we, we also use the example for, uh, for flat panel TVs that Amazon is most likely going to have to source those TVs from the Australian subsidiaries of Samsung, Sony, and LG. So they may not. So Amazon may not necessarily be able to come in with those low prices that we that we can see overseas. What do you think it means for the owners of shopping malls in Australia? We're definitely concerned about them as well as a, as a longer term thematic. Clearly, when more of that economic pie is shifting to online fulfillment, 
it means that less people will necessarily be going to malls. We've already started to see that trend happening overseas where the second tier uh, malls are, are just losing traffic to that online phenomenon. You'll also note this morning we just put out a note uh, from our media analyst, uh, Andrew McLeod, who's also, think, who's also thinking about other second order impacts of, of Amazon's arrival. And we're thinking around how the media sector could also be negatively impacted by by Amazon. I'll give you some numbers here. So for media, um, media accounts for around 20 to 30% of total ad spend in, in this country. If your single largest uh, customer, which is the retail sector, is under, under pressure, it also by extension means that you are probably going to come under pressure. And if you look at the way how retail spends money in this country, about 50% of that goes into TV advertising and around 20% of that goes into the internet. So when you look at the media space, Amazon's arrival could signal another headwind for the TV sector and, and sort of the, the TV radio print, print sector. Again, just like in retail, it's not, a, it's not a today problem, but it's, again, just a longer structural issue that the industry needs to deal with. In a way, and if I can switch metaphors for a minute, Rosalind Kogan is John the Baptist to Amazon's Jesus. He started selling consumer electronics online in 2006 from his mum and dad's garage, and now he runs a $150 million listed online retailer that sells everything, just like Amazon does everywhere but here. Rosalind Kogan told me he's ready for Amazon, but he's not sure about the others. The Amazon arrival's been something that's been talked about for quite a while, and it was refreshing to actually get a bit of news from them a few days ago where they're taking expressions of interest for people who want to sell on their platform. Now, From the perspective of the Kogan.com business, we have a business with a very strong consumer offering. We've got a business where over 50% of our GP is generated by our private label products. And uh, private label for us is a way to have uh, a very strong consumer offering whilst maintaining healthy margins and a unique competitive advantage in the market. So that product division, uh, we expect to benefit from an Amazon arrival because it gives us an additional channel to market. When Amazon arrives in a country, they tend to increase the online retail penetration in that region, as you can see from places like Germany or the UK And as a result of that, there's more people shopping online, but they also provide a very cost-effective platform to reach more eyeballs. You'll be selling uh, Kogan Labels products via Amazon, will you, is it? Yeah, certainly. And what we're seeing in general on the global landscape in retail at the moment is that brands have less meaning than they've ever had. People are at their computers, they're at a Google browser, they're reading reviews, they're, they're doing a quick Google search to read about a product rather than just saying, oh, it's a Sony TV, so it must be good, or it's a Grundig TV, it's a German brand, it must be good. That may have been how they shopped 20 or 30 years ago, but these days people care more about the product than they do about the brand. If you see someone walking out of an Aldi store and they've got cereal 
uh, in their trolley, ask them what brand is that cereal. They won't have a clue. So you've been presumably studying Amazon for a while now. What do you think of them? Amazon's a very innovative retailer and they do a lot of things uh, very well. They're obviously a global leader in this space and we've got respect for their business and uh, how they operate several divisions and especially the innovation piece of it. They operate in a slightly different market to the Australian market in terms of being a a listed company. They operate uh, in a region which uh, is happy to put up with no profits for a long time. Uh, We don't have that in the Australian market and that's why Kogan's been designed to be a profitable retailer from day one. We've been EBITDA positive since inception. What's your sense of how the rest of Australia's retailers are prepared for the arrival of Amazon and in particular JB Hi-Fi and Harvey Norman? I think that the retailers that'll be hurt by an Amazon arrival is are the retailers that are selling the same thing as everyone else uh, for the same price as everyone else, no competitive advantage, no leverage with the brands, and they've just managed to float around for the last decade or two. And those sort of retailers uh, will be hurt by an Amazon arrival because One thing Amazon Arrival does do is it gives the market very accurate information about what a product should cost and uh, what the most competitive offer in the market is and, um, you know, things like that. It it creates uh, information parity between uh, brands, distributors and uh, the consumer. Now, you mentioned JB and Harvey Norman. They're decent businesses. They're strong retailers that have been doing very well. I think that some of the impacts that an Amazon may have um, on certain strong retailers out there has been a bit overhyped. And they've probably come in the firing line of that that, uh, exaggerated uh, hype or impact that an Amazon would have. But it's your, your weaker retailers, like I said, that don't have that strong competitive advantage or consumer offering, uh, they they will be hurt. Um, one of the things that's probably handy in evaluating what an Amazon arrival looks like is to look overseas, to look at places where it has happened, like uh, uh, UK. In the UK, they've been there for uh, nearly 20 years. Now, in that 20 years, the, they've grown the online retail market significantly and they've taken a a small portion of that market and they've built a successful business over there but uh, there's still room for many online retailers in the UK that are doing very well the incumbent bricks and mortar retailers that have strong businesses like John Lewis have kept doing really well over there so Amazon's a good business but it's not like some of the headlines we've been seeing make it out to be like oh they'll arrive and uh you know, they'll have a monopoly over retail very quickly. The only monopolies out there are government-mandated monopolies, and Amazon certainly isn't one of them. It's interesting what you said about providing a price comparison. I mean, in a way, Amazon really gives a, um, a sort of a pricing benchmark on a lot of products, I guess, won't it? It does. Amazon is a marketplace. That's one of the pillars of their business, and a huge contributor to their revenue is their marketplace business model. But there's marketplace business models that – 
exist in Australia already, like eBay, for instance. And Kogan is already one of the biggest sellers on eBay Australia. And Amazon is an additional marketplace in that regard. And it ultimately, you know, the consumer's the winner because it's quicker and easier uh, to know what a product should cost to compare deals, to know if you're getting ripped off or not. So it's going to be a great tool for consumers in that regard. From our perspective, uh, we run our business like that anyway, that our, every decision that we make in our sourcing, in our retailing, in our supply chain assumes that the customer is very intelligent and is going to make a rational choice. So we think we will benefit from that sort of consumer mindset where people become more informed and start gathering more and more information about every purchase they make. One of the things that everyone talks about is Amazon Prime and the thing that a lot of people here are scared of, retailers are scared of, is Amazon Prime where people pay to be a member and they get the guaranteed overnight delivery for free plus a bunch of digital content. That is a new sort of thing. You've got a membership system but yours is free membership. It does feel like that sort of membership where you pay not only provides a cash flow for Amazon, it it sort of encourages people to spend more and more at that store. Prime is a is an interesting offering and with time it will be certainly be interesting to see how that plays out. On the Kogan website when it comes to shipping, we take a customer centric approach to it whereby uh, you know, we've got about 50% of the products on our site are free shipping every day of the week. You don't need to pay for a membership. You just get free shipping on that product. We will do that whenever a certain product uh, costs roughly the same to send anywhere in Australia. So it's usually with your smaller parcels, uh, the cost difference between sending it to Melbourne, Sydney or Broome is negligible. Then with the more bulkier products, we take a customer-centric approach because uh, it's a lot cheaper for us to deliver them into Melbourne, Sydney or Brisbane. And if we were to do free shipping on products like that, we would essentially be uh, making our Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane customers subsidise our rural customers in Broome and and elsewhere in Australia. And it would be great for the rural customers, but you would be punishing the majority for the benefit of the minority. So we take a customer-centric approach there where shipping is an actual cost that a retailer incurs. It's one of the um, big costs in online retail. And yes, you still get a better deal whether you factor shipping into account or not, but we take the assumption that uh, people in the long term are rational, they understand the way a transaction works and shipping is a cost that needs to be incurred. So uh, yeah, like I said, half of our store is free shipping where it costs roughly the same to send anywhere in the country, but some we do charge additional shipping for. The Australian Gold Share Index has had a roller coaster ride this year, up 18% by early February, then all the way back down again in March, back up 20% in April, and now halfway back down again to be 9% ahead for the year to date, which is about double the performance of the market as a whole, so not too shabby. The trouble with gold is that it's tossed around by more than simply supply and demand, like other commodities, and it's also really important to a lot of Australian investors, not to mention the whole economy as a significant export. 
so I thought it was time to check in with gold analyst Paul Hissey from RBC. Will gold stocks continue to outperform? Yeah, look, our house forecast at RBC is is a constant $1,300 US forecast, um, and uh, and we have sort of a two-part forecast, I guess, a, a near-term explicit number and then a long-term average, if you like, which is set off of uh, normalised firm-wide expectations of real interest rates in the US, which are about 2%. Uh, so we're in an interesting point now where spot price, if you like, uh, and our long-term price are, are relatively close together. So flat $1,300 forever is our base case. $1,300 forever? Uh, yeah. And obviously, look, I mean, academically, long-term, sort of five years out and beyond, it becomes a, an esoteric or an academic argument, if you will. That's a long-term average. So there are clearly going to be times where the price can be above and and below that. Um, that's a fairly consistent concept across all metals uh, and commodity forecasting. You have to have a number, you know, that you can use into perpetuity to value companies and assets. And uh, and so 1300 is the number for us. What's it based on? What are the influences going to be? problem with gold is it's got both sort of uh, supply and demand issues, but also geopolitical and emotional type issues. Well, I'd probably challenge the first one. I'm not a real sort of supply-demand, cost-pull, cost-push uh, kind of guy when it comes to when it comes to gold. We don't really consume it, you know. I would hazard a guess uh, all of the gold that's ever been mined is still sitting around somewhere, you know, a large portion of it in gold bars or, or, or certainly um, pretty significant quantities in jewellery, etc. And so at the right price, if you like, supply becomes infinite as opposed to copper or iron ore, things like that, where, uh, you know, where we absolutely consume the metal. Look, our long-term price of $1,300 is, uh, is set, you know, looking at the long term, it's a very significant trend showing the, the correlation between real rates in the US and gold price itself. And so there's certainly that fiscal element to, to the forecast there. And, uh, you know, as a house view, I think, and I don't think we would be, uh, you know, wildly off the mark in, t- in terms of consensus here, but 2% normalised real interest rates in the US is our base case and the correlating or the appropriate gold price as a long-term average is $1,300 or that's, we assume it to be $1,300. And so, and I'll look, I stress, you know, there are clearly going to be periods where the gold price is above that and below that, you know, $1,300 doesn't feel like a bad number based on the last couple of years. But I think the big problem with a lot of these forecasts, which I'm sure you're well aware, and I would include all of the commodity suite in this, in the same boat here is, you know, I guess the current state of the macroeconomic environment with low rates worldwide, significant debt levels, uh, government participation, asset ownership. It's not a cliche to say we're in uncharted territory here. And so whether or not that means it's an appropriate number, you know, going forward remains to be seen. But but the very notion of a long-term commodity price, Alan, is I guess it's academic by nature. You know, we don't expect the price to be flat uh, at $1,300 forever. Um, we have an explicit forecast for the next few years, uh, which just so happens to be flat. But certainly at times in the past, we've had a more positive or, or negative view on the directionality. Most uh, financial analysts would get to a point, some point in future, where you revert to a, a long-run average, if you will. But you seem to be also, or RBC, seems to be linking the gold price to the American real interest rate. Can you explain the link? How does 2% real interest rate turn into $1,300 an ounce for gold? Simplistically, it's a correlation. It's a very significant long-term trend, which probably I think uh, you know it shows a good it shows a good trend if you go back over the last 150 years, Alan. And so I think we're we're drawing on um, on that relationship. You know, 
the the links between inflation and gold, using gold as a edge against inflation in times where inflation is is running ahead, and then using gold as a store of wealth is very strong. And so, I'm sure economists uh, and central bankers would uh, would be able to give you a much more a much more detailed reason why there is such a relationship between the two. But the fact is, there is that relationship, and I guess that's all that matters. That's right, and I don't think too many investors are going to buy equities based on those long-term numbers. But of course, if you have an asset that's got a, a long life, you have to try and figure out what uh, you know what kind of revenue or cash flow it's going to generate in those latter years. And so that's as useful point as any. And perhaps it's a neat way just to tie back into your earlier statement about supply and demand. I think if we were to talk about something like copper or iron ore, you know, we can look at long-term growth rates for, for demand. So that gives us one side of the equation. And then we can go ahead and we can map all of the future potential sources of supply that we can possibly think of. We don't know about new discoveries, but we know about all the existing discoveries which aren't currently in production. We can then run the math on what would be required to go ahead and spend the capital on bringing that new supply to the market. And I think in those metals where you actually consume them, it's clearly a detailed um, exercise, but you can you can have a really good go at quantitatively figuring out the demand side of the equation and then the supply required to match that demand. And then you can figure out what's called an incentive price. So, you know, copper, for example, what's the price we would need for the marginal new copper mine to be bought into production to meet ongoing demand growth? Uh, worldwide. And if that's, you know, it might not be one project, it might be a series of projects, but in order for investors or companies to make a rational decision to commit capital to that project, we might require $4 copper, for example, $4 a pound for people to say, yes, this project makes a sufficient return, let's commit to that. And so I think it's much easier to at least mathematically come up with that that long-term notional kind of academic price on those metals that we actually consume. But, you know, get, tying it back to your original point, I think gold is, is certainly much more of a, uh, a tool or a commodity related to, to, I guess, the state of the economy and financial implications and, and the US economy in particular. If you're right about the price, long-term, 1300 roughly US dollars an ounce, are there any Australian gold miners that particularly stand out at that price as good profit earners? There's a couple of ways. I mean, first of all, just to, I guess, in full disclosure, we don't typically stress too much about profit when it comes to, to our other universe. And I know that's certainly an important metric, but um, what matters a lot to us is cash flow. We derive the valuation of these companies uh, using either NPV, which is a, a long-term explicit assumption of how much cash they can generate. As you and your listeners will know, cash isn't always the same as profit. And we also use, I guess, a shorter-term snapshot of the coming 12 months cash flow and, and looking at the delta, I guess, year on year to try and determine which stocks are going to outperform their peer group. Today's underlying inflation figure was 1.8%, a bit below the 1.9% that Annette Beecher of TD Securities had predicted. The dollar dropped when it came out, but not that much. So I asked Annette what she learned from today's release. What we found out today is inflation is now off the floor. From a headline perspective, it's actually back to the 2 to 3% target band, something we haven't seen for quite some time. And the core measure has increased from 1.5, where it sat all of last year, and is now sitting closer to 1.8%. So I guess the message from today is that inflation is now officially off the floor, uh, and last, year, last year's example of downside surprises, uh, I think, are over. And from here on in, 
inflation can be expected to be within the target band. What about in the detail? Were there any surprises in particular categories? I looked at the excruciating detail just to see uh, you know, if there are any lessons in there. And I guess most of the upsides were as expected. We already knew that fuel would be up about 6% in the quarter. And we do know that this is a quarter with seasonal increases in education. Uh, anyone with kids know that we get a letter once a year saying, you know, thank you, your costs will now be 4 to 5% higher. That's come to fruition. And of course, we also have the annual pharmaceutical reset uh, in Q1 and that that rose 5%. So I have to say the upsides were exactly as expected and so the downsides were, were the surprises and I guess the biggest surprise is just the extent of discounting to get product out the door. We saw some pretty decent 3% falls uh, in the clothing sector and the footwear sector uh, and also a bit of discounting in the in furniture as well. So the ABS did acknowledge that this is heavier than expected post-Christmas discounting uh, and they're the downsides that came out today. So I, I guess, as you said, what's what was the new news? I guess that's really what the new news was is that the retail sector is really having to discount to shift their product. That's been the case for quite a while now and that's been really the big drag on inflation in a way. It certainly has. I guess probably what's surprising is that what the price, you, we sort of need to separate sort of two lots is we're talking goods versus services and we're talking tradable versus domestic. And what I've actually noticed this time around is domestic inflation, i.e. prices set at home, actually accelerated in annual terms now from, it was 1.7 a year ago and it's now 2.6%. So domestic inflation is actually bang on target. Uh, it's, it's actually the international prices that have been discounted, which is clothing, audiovisual, uh, books, cameras. They're already set on the world stage, plus the falls have been uh, accelerated by retailers. And I guess that part will still continue, particularly with the chatter um, of Amazon coming, uh, keeping the prices of some goods down. But I, I have to say that the economy these days is driven more by services, and it is services inflation we need to keep an eye on. Interesting comment in your note that came out after the CPI, where you said the base case, your base case is for a rate hike by year end on urgent financial stability grounds and the need to attract offshore capital, not due to runaway inflation. So what are the urgent financial stability grounds for raising interest rates? That's a very fancy way of saying that what we've seen from um, ASIC and APRA, our, uh, our prudential regulatory authorities, is been purely trying to cool housing demand via interest-only loans. And that is certainly admirable, and that is a sector that does need to be looked at closely, in particular uh, in terms of speculative investment. But it's ignoring all the other demand uh, for houses, if it's first homeowners or upgraders, uh, retirees, self-funded super funds, I mean, all, and even offshore investors. I mean, there's lots of demand there keeping house prices accelerated. And so to me, targeting interest-only loans is a, is a fraction of that. 
And to me, I think households need to look very closely at their debt levels. And I'm just of the view that talking about a higher interest rate and delivering one interest rate increase this year, that's all I'm talking about, might actually get some people rethinking um, about their commitments. The RBA itself mentioned that there's not enough buffers uh, in household balance sheets, and we might actually get a return to paying off debt. Um, I'm very worried about debt levels. Owner-occupied debt is accelerating, and targeting interest only loans is just not the solution. And why will there be a need to attract offshore capital? Oh, this is my favourite bugbear at the moment. I mean, you know, if I put my other hat on, um, I do have the enviable job of flying around the world trying to sell uh, Australian bonds for a, a budget that's in a mess, probably a topic for another time. Uh, we have $100 billion worth of bonds to sell. And the bank balance sheets can take so much, the rest of the demand has to come from offshore. And if the RBA sits tight for too long, the Fed's hiked three times now, they're expected to hike another three, four times over the next 12 to 18 months. Eventually, Australia will not be a high yielder. And if we're not a high yielder and we don't attract offshore capital, the government is going to have a great deal of trouble trying to fund its budget. So it's, and this, I guess the secondary consideration is I do realise that the Fed uh, hiking interest rates you know, does make the Australian dollar fall, but I don't think the RBA wants to see the Australian dollar collapse if offshore interest in Australia and the Australian dollar uh, completely evaporates. And today it's my birthday. Well, yesterday, in fact. So I thought I'd play you my favourite song at the moment, which is Tompkins Square Park by Mumford & Sons. Here it is. Thanks to my constant team, as always, and thanks to ISM Studios for the music. I'll see you in your inbox on Saturday morning. Thank you.